Hey, thank you for joining us online today. We are so glad that you joined us. Every week, people uh, from all over the world are watching with us. So we're glad today that you're here with us as we proclaim God's gospel and God's word. Uh, before we get started today, we want to let you know that this sermon is not meant to replace uh, the local and biblical community that you need to be a part of and the local church that you need to be involved in. This uh, sermon is supplemental uh, to you sitting under the care of a local church pastor um, and the care of a local church family. Uh, because Christianity is not about individual persons, it is about a people, it is about the church. So if you live anywhere in around the Middle Tennessee area, we would love for you to join us at one of our local campuses. Um, if you live outside of that area, we'd love to connect you to a good church. Uh, if you'll reach out to us through Facebook, through Twitter, Instagram, if you'll email us, we want to help you find a good, healthy, uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church that you can connect to, that you can plug into, and you can find life and live sin. So we want to help you do that. We pray that hope that this sermon and these messages bless you, and you please reach out to us and let us know how we can help. Today, we're going to continue uh, in our, our study in, uh, in the book of Judges in chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn there, Judges chapter 3. Uh, we're going to uh, pick up where we, picked, uh, we kind of left it last week when uh, Jordan was here and uh, did a great job uh, opening and kind of introducing our series. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, he pointed out that uh, I think is, is important for us as we kind of dive in today is just understanding that the judges uh, that, that we're going to look at in this narrative as we kind of follow the story, they're never supposed to be a place where our, our focus terminates, right? It's always pointing forward. It's always looking forward. And so that's something I want to, you just, everything we do, Travis was talking about uh, in your family, man, uh, in your life personally, in your marriage um, we have, we have great reason to, to, to worship. We have great reason uh, to praise him. We have great reason to be thankful because uh, as, as the judges were served as uh, a reminder uh, to, to the Israelites of a Savior to come, listen, we've seen that Savior. We, we experience him in, in his word. We've, we've been given him in his life. And so uh, today, as we open his word, let's, let's be anxious about what he wants to say to our lives. You know, everybody loves uh, a great underdog story, don't we? Uh, you know, like the miracle on ice or some sports, you know, story that's kind of unfolded uh, that you've, you've been a part of. Maybe your kid's little league team was playing the team that was like full of kids, like they were on steroids or something, and they were able to overcome these giants. We all love a great underdog story. One from uh, uh, a historical leader that uh, I, I look to, and I'm thinking, man, he is just so awesome, especially the depiction of him where he's a vampire, uh, not a vampire, a zombie slayer, is Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln uh, is awesome. And, you know, obviously we look at Abraham Lincoln, we think about the things that he was able to do, the way he resided over uh, the Civil War, uh, the, the way that he brought an end and was willing to stand against uh, just human injustice and, uh, and to, to, to really played a massive role in ending slavery uh, in, in America. He, he's incredibly known for those things. But one of the things you may not know about uh, Abraham Lincoln, which is why I think he's awesome, is that Abraham Lincoln was born, uh, just a couple stats here, born in Hardin, Kentucky in 1809 uh, in a log cabin to two illiterate parents. Uh, his mom, uh, he only had one year 
of education formally. Uh, his mom uh, died when he was nine. He, uh, he, he, his fiance later in life passed away. Uh, he, he had four kids by another lady uh, that would become his, his wife. Uh, and two of those passed away. Uh, he, he struggled with depression. He suffered a nervous breakdown. He lost eight elections, failed in business twice. His life was literally littered with stories of cards stacked against him. He, we look at him and we celebrate his victories, but this is, if anything, a true story of an underdog from the beginning, right? Someone who should have never made it. But if we just think about what, what would have panned out in history had he, he been able to live a little bit longer, Right, just incredible uh, potential that you know the Lord blessed him and his leadership. But a true underdog from the beginning. Today, as we dive in to Judges chapter three, what we're going to see is another underdog story, uh, an underdog in the form of a judge that the Lord raised up. It says in the text, uh, named Ehud. Uh, Ehud was a judge that uh, would come and would fight like Abraham Lincoln for the redemption, the liberation of a people, uh, and, an un- and a, a judge who is a true underdog from the, from the truest sense of the word. Before we dive into the text, a couple things to set kind of a context and a backdrop for our, our, uh, our time in the word today, and really for our series, is Ju- Judges chapter 3 opens with, uh, with some important language that I want to make sure that we, we don't just blow by uh, this morning. When it opens, it says, uh, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. On down in, in verse 4, it would say that they were for the testing of Israel. Talking about these nations. He lists them off. And then verse 4 says, now they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded by the fathers by the hand of Moses. I think it's important if we think back uh, to kind of, again, to kind of encapsulate the context of this passage. If you think back when, when God brought the Israelites into this promised land, this land he had set aside, that he had promised to the forefathers of, uh, of Joshua, of Moses, even beyond, all the way to Abraham. He had, he had set aside a land. He had promised the land. He had delivered on this promise. Now, when God brought the uh, Israelite people into this land by the leadership uh, of Joshua, if you remember, Moses dies on Mount Pisgah, and he, he kind of passes the torch to Joshua, who is kind of his, his sidekick, his pupil. Uh, and he, he then has this massive undertaking of taking these Israelites into the land of, this, uh, of Canaan, this promised land God had set aside, remember. Uh, but the problem was when they got there, it wasn't empty, right? It wasn't just like set up and, you know, like, it, listen, this is yours. It's like staked off fences, like a security code. You walk in. It wasn't like that. This was a place that was inhabited by all of these pagan uh, kingdoms. And God told them to, to destroy utterly all of them. Right, this land was devoted to God. It was set aside by God to be devoted to God, for God's people. And if you know the, the narrative, they do. Like they come in, they, they go to war, and Joshua's leading mightily against these people. They're conquering, they're doing all that. But then over time, what began to happen is uh, kind of like coming back from camp. Like our kids come back, they're ready to storm hell with a water pistol, right? Like they're going in, they're telling everybody about Jesus. And then like a month later sets in and, you know, the kids that uh, were on fire, it's kind of more like a simmer, right? It's, uh, it's starting to, to kind of die down a little bit. This is kind of what's happening in, in, the, in, the, in the story, right? The Israelites go in, they're obeying the Lord, they're destroying the nations. Then they begin to leave pockets, little pockets of 
of paganism, little pockets of idolatry in a place where God said, no, this is mine. And there's a, I think there's a principle that God says in here that we, we, we need to understand about the, the book of Judges. He says that he left these, God didn't just, I mean, despite their disobedience, God didn't just go in and wipe it out. He could have just said, listen, this is my land. You guys, you're hopeless. Let me, let me fix where you failed, right? Let me step into that void, and I'm going to get rid of the nations. He could have easily done that. Right, with a lightning bolt, dropped them all dead. Or the what, worms would come up and ate them from the ground or something. Like something crazy could have happened. But he didn't do that. He says he left them for their testing. Now it's important, I think we understand, God never tempts his people. But he does test us. He does say, you may ask the question, like, and I, I struggle, I, I, I love the Lord, but I have this besetting sin. Why doesn't God just rid it? Why doesn't God just give me an extra measure of grace to where this is not something I struggle with? For you, that may be a, a temptation towards uh, you know, alcoholism, or it may be a temptation towards gluttony, or maybe a temptation towards uh, giving into angry urges to uh, argumentative nature, or whatever that is. There, there's these besetting sins that some of us deal with. Every one of us, let me say that, deal with these things. We say, why doesn't God just get rid of them? Well, he tells us why he doesn't. To test us. To see, like the Israelites, if we would obey him, if we would look at God as worth it enough to go to war, not against necessarily all the nations, but against ourselves and our, and our deep-set urges, our natural inclinations, we'd go to war against ourselves every day and say, God is worth more than this worth more than this bent, worth more than this propensity that I give into often. Since he left them to test them to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. So they left these pockets of resistance. And then uh, in verse 11, well, it's not 11, I'm sorry, 6, it says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to the sons of these pagan nations, so that they, and they served their God. So what What's dangerous about their, uh, their lacks on God's commandments? What's dangerous about them kind of pumping the brakes a little bit on their, their commitment and fervency to do what God called them to is that they not, they not only didn't drive out these nations and destroy the na- these nations, they ended up becoming these people. And, and they didn't just take on new daughters and new sons from these pagan people, but they took on their gods. They, they, their, their cultural, their cultural uh, what's the word? Their, their cultural, uh, I guess, watered-down commitment led to an adaptation to a lot of these pagan ways of life. And, and, and namely, that they found themselves not bowing down to Yahweh, but they would look up and they'd find themselves bowing down to these idols of these Moabite people uh, in the text that we see today. And so, due to their disobedience and the willingness of the Lord, God, uh, God, rather than driving out the nation, God left them to test them. And there's this biblical principle that I, I want to, uh, we hit on this last week, but I want to bring it back to the forefront of your mind to, to urge you in as well, that there is this biblical principle that small areas of disobedience in your life are not something we just overlook. Like, like these little pockets of disobedience in your life lead to large areas of disaster spiritually for you. John Bunyan, um, he wrote this, this story, it's a Christian classic, I've not even worked my way all the way through it. It's, it's a heavy read, but it's, it's great. Uh, I know at one point, um, one of the guys on our staff was reading it with his kids, and I thought it was as awesome as a nighttime story. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. You've heard of this, right? 
Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, in, in, in his life, he wrote this, uh, uh, this quote. He said that a small leak sinks a ship. Small sins destroy a sinner. Listen, I think if we hear anything from the judges, if we learn anything from Israel, it's that even the smallest sin in our life needs to be dragged in, into the light and, and repented of. And today what we're going to see, and, and even past today, the cyclical pattern of judges is that a people find themselves encapsulated in sin. God sins uh, or he, he strengthens a pagan king against them or a pagan nation to, to, to oppress them and beat them down. And then they then in their oppression, they turn back to God and God raises up a judge. And so if there's anything that we learn from this, learn that, man, hate the things that God hates. So don't turn back to the sin in your life that besets you because it will destroy you. It will destroy us. And, and so with that in mind, as a kind of a backdrop, with the biblical principle of partial obedience is utterly disobedience, let's dive into this passage today and see what God has from us from this text. And so we're going to be in verses 12 through, uh, really all the way through verse 30. And so let me, uh, let me, let me dive in. We're just going to read a couple. We'll talk about it, okay? Verse 12 says this. Y'all with me? All right, amen. Here we go. It says this. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There it is. Again. Right? It's a cyclical pattern, this, this re- repetition playing out in Judges. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had, not, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They had not obeyed him. He gathered to himself. The Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So again, it says Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it says that what God does in response is he strengthens this pagan king, Eglon, the king of the Moabites, to, to oppress this, his people. Why does he do it? To test them. To show them to, a, a lesson. Listen, God wants us to understand that the sin in our life that we deal with, he, he, he's teaching us something in that fire, that, that, that battle that we, we wage every day. Will you obey him? Will you utterly obey him or will you, will you flex on his commands, on the things that God has called you to? So God strengthens his king. Don't drive by that. Eglon wasn't... wasn't more powerful than the nation of Israel. God strengthened Eglon to oppress his people, to teach them a lesson, to test them. Nothing happens apart from God's hand. Eglon didn't just take Israel. God gave them to Eglon to teach them a lesson. And the people served Eglon for 18 years. For 18 years, they're now bowing down to this pagan king. And listen, when when I was studying this week, this is one of the things that... uh, I think for me, kind of out of the whole passage, this is one of the things that kind of weighed most heavily, I think, on me. That if you think about who these people are that are now bowing down before this man, these statues, the Baals and the Asheroth, it says at the beginning of chapter 3, the, the, the Moabite gods. This is the nation of, it. this is God's people. The same people that God brought out of 400 years of bondage 
in Egypt. The same God who he fed his people with bread from the sky. He gave them drink from a rock. Right? He, he parted a sea, and it doesn't say that they had to walk through the shallow end, right? But that it was dry. Like, so, so these people have witnessed God's hand on their lives, and their forefathers would have told these stories, passed it down through generations of God's faithfulness to them. Yet, what did they do? Now they're bowing for 18 years, 40 years of provision, now 18 years of rebellion. And so I, I started to think about this, and how easily we forget. How easily we forget God's hand on our lives. Sure, we can recount, man, like the, the hard things in our lives. Like you know, some of you may walk through a divorce or the loss of a family member or your parents or a kid. And we've, we walk in financial difficulty often. There's things that we all juggle that are beyond us. We don't have the strength to understand and make sense of. Wow, let us not forget the gift of life we've celebrated, right? The fact that we had a job, God's provision on our family, the fact that we get to come and worship as we do. God's hand is on us, but so often our inclination, like the Israelites, is to forget. And I think what we do many times when we read the Judges, we read the Old Testament, is we shake our heads at the Israelites. Let us not think that we've progressed past the same sin. How often have we turned our back on the, on the Lord who has been faithful to us and turned to these, these minor urges, these things that, are, that, that cannot satisfy? We turn to them because they look so promising. They feel so good. And, and the reality is that at the end of the day, they leave us empty. And the whole time, God's hand's been there. And what we see happen in the very next verse, look how unlike us God is. Look what happens in verse 16 or in 15. It says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And what did he do? He says, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So 18 years of rebellion and in the moment of repentance, God moves towards his people with faithfulness, with grace. Right? With a deliverer. And so I would be remiss if I didn't say in, in this moment right here in the text, if I blew by this, I'd be remiss. If I didn't say, listen, I know the reality in a, in a room like this, there are some of us that have been walking in a season of sin. Right? Maybe, maybe it's been a long season. Maybe it's something that's not even public to your family, to your wife, to your husband. Listen, we've been walking in rebellion to the Lord. Maybe there's an area of your life you've not surrendered to him. I promise you, if we learn anything from this book of Judges, it's that in the moment of repentance, God moves to his people. He is far more faithful to us than we are to him. Let us us understand that. God, in a moment, it says he raises up for them a deliverer. He could have said, no, 18 years from now, then then I'll give you a deliverer. Then I'll give you rest. Then I'll give you relief from the oppression you're feeling. But instantly, in a moment of repentance, God, people cry out to him, and he moves towards them with repentance. Incredible, incredible truth here. I think the thing we need to see, the reality in this text, is that the moment that we stop seeing and savoring Jesus, 
we stop recalling his faithfulness in our lives, we will begin seeking and serving something else. That's, that's the reality of any sin in your life. It's for the believers that we've taken our eyes off of our God. We've taken our eyes off of Christ. And we've started to put them on other things. And when Jesus stops sustaining you, when Jesus stops satisfying you, you will turn to something else that will. Yet it won't. Yet it won't. And again, you will find yourself, like these Israelites, in disastrous situation, bowing down to something foreign to the Lord, something that, the God, that God hates. But if you would turn, but if you would turn, God would move towards you. So Israel cries out, and God raises up Ehud. The text says that he's left-handed. Now, at first I read that, I was like, Cool detail. Why is he saying that? Maybe because lefties are weird. Uh, I, I, did, how, now, I need to know, how many of you are left-handed in here? Awesome. This is the weirdest congregation. I'm just going to tell you, like, in the first service I said that, and, like, I think everybody's left-handed. I'm like, this is awesome. Cool. I, I've offended the whole church. Um, that's probably par for the course. That's the student pastor's job. But, uh, but the Hebrew construction of this verse says something that's really important. You know, it's not just a, a small detail. This is everything in this passage. Right? It says he's left-handed, which in Hebrew it means literally that his right hand was closed. Which means from birth, he had no access to use it. It means that uh, a lot of commentators believe that he was crippled from, from birth in his right arm. He, was, uh, he, he had a disability. He was born, uh, or there was a moment early on in his life when uh, some situation has caused him to have some kind of physical uh, ailment in his right arm. Where it was utterly useless to him. The Bible only attributes his ability to his left hand. He says he's, he's, he's a left-handed man. Now, it's important for us to understand context that if he was born without, with a disability, with, with no right arm or no right hand or a withered right hand, he would have been instantly in a underdog story situation. Right? He would have been thrust into a culture that literally devalued anybody with any kind of physical ailment. In fact, in, uh, in, in China today, okay, in China today, if you're born with a disability or if, you're, uh, if you, you have a child with a disability, they don't even educate them. Today, in 2008, if you remember, in the Beijing Olympics, there was uh, a little girl who, it was, this was probably headlines everywhere, there's this little girl who sung the opening uh, kind of, I think it's called the Ode to the Motherland for them. It's like their national anthem. Uh, she, she sung this thing, uh, this, this, this ceremony opening. She sung the national anthem for, uh, for China. And, um, and as the, the camera kind of panned in and footage began to kind of be evaluated a little closer, you begin to realize she's not singing altogether. She was lip syncing. And the voice that you were hearing belonged to a little girl who they deemed was not worthy of the stage because her teeth were uneven. This playing out in our culture today uh, is only a glimpse of how bad it truly was for Ehud being born with a disability at this time. And, and, and listen, I know that God had this for a purpose. I know that God gives us a story for a purpose. Because, listen, we can read the Judges, and listen, uh, we'll get to Samson, and that's awesome. But no one, none of us, uh, maybe besides Doug, uh, uh, will, we'll, uh, you know, identify with Samson, okay? 
Sorry, I had to put you on the spot, but you're Jack. Uh, so listen, none of us identify with, James, with Samson, okay? None of us do. But every one of us in this room, every one of us can identify with Ehud. Every one of us in some place in our life, we look at a, at a situation, at a weakness, at some uh, shortcoming, and we say, I, I feel like I'm handicapped. I feel like I'm unusable. I feel like I'm disregarded. I feel like I'm, I, I'm, uh, I, I can be sidelined because of this thing. Maybe it's a past just littered with bad decisions. It, it is a lineage from your family of rebellion. No one in your family maybe serves the Lord, no one goes to church. No one uh, handles their life the way that the, the Bible tells you to. Maybe for you, it, it's, it's because you, you've only had so much education, you feel like God can't use you, right? You feel like you don't know enough of the Bible. You feel like you've just recently been, been introduced to uh, the Word. And, and how could you lead? How could you share? What if you mess it up, right? We all feel like if we look over our lives that there is this handicap to some, some degree, but listen, to every one of these natural, I'm going to say that, these are natural objections. All of us feel it. We feel this fear in some place. So there's some void that kind of kind of like pushes us back off of the stage of being used by God, of jumping all in. To every one of those natural objections that you might conjure, you have Ehud. This left-handed man, this cripple, this overlooked, unusable person that we will see, God will raise him up to be a judge of Israel, and he will be the longest tenured judge of all the judges. Longer, longer tenured than Samson, longer tenured than Gideon, longer tenured than any of them. And so we will learn some incredible things in this story. So I, I want to continue before I get on a, a rant and get off time here. So uh, verse 16 says this, and Ehud made for himself a sword. So here's, uh, here's this man, Ehud, going to the king of Moab, it says, to make tribute. This man named Eglon, who has oppressed his people for 18 years. And here's, here's Ehud going to make tribute. And it says, he made for himself a sword with two edges. He's, he's making a shank, right, uh, with two edges. It says a cubit in length, about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. It says, I'm going to talk about why I use this language in a minute. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came uh, to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And it says he arose from his seat. So what we're told in the verses pre previous to this is that Ehud's going to make tribute to this king, right? And so here you have this left-handed man, a cripple with, with really no, no use of his right arm. And it says that he, takes the, he makes a shank and he puts it on his right hip. Now, why is that important? Well, here's a man... Well, I'm glad you asked, though. Uh, but here's a man that, uh, that, that would have been overlooked his entire life. Right? You, you just, if you think about his life and the, the kind of the rhythms that he would have experienced, he would have been overlooked. They would have, looked, I mean, they would have just dis discredited him, discounted him his entire life. And I think in this moment, it says that he turns back once he sees these idols at Gilgal. And they're, they're, we're going to come back to that. I think in this moment, he has this holy anger when he sees these idols constructed 
that people were probably bowing down to, paying tribute to, paying homage to, praying to. He has this holy anger. And he, he realizes in that moment that the very weakness that he had experienced his whole life is now going to be his greatest strength. He puts a sword on his right hip, the very place that he would have been just overlooked. They'll never expect it coming from him, right? They'll never think he's capable. He'll never be viewed as a threat. He'll never be searched. He's going to have it on his right hip underneath his right unusable arm, okay? And it says he gets to these idols at Gilgal. Now, if you remember, Gilgal is a very important place. In Joshua, when the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan River, right before they take this city of the Palms, Jericho, they build, it says, this memorial to the Lord. It's a remember, it's a place that they would remember God's greatness and his ability to, to sustain him, provide for him, and his faithfulness to them, right? And so they build these memorials here at, at the banks of the Jordan River. And it says, when he gets to the idols at Gilgal. Now, if you remember, they, it says God strengthened the Amalekites and, and the Amorites. And, and it says that Eglon uh, basically took this, this kingdom. He took over Jericho. Now, uh, any time in antiquity when uh, one nation would take over another, they would, they would erect, like, uh, uh, they would break down their, their, their statues and they would erect a new one to their God, right? It's kind of like us uh, when we, in wartime, would take over uh, a place or take over a territory. We would, uh, we would fly the American flag on the soil, right? This is kind of what's happening in here. And so it says that when he got to Gilgal, the very place where these, these stones, of the memorial stones would have been, would have been fixed, now idols stand. And it says when he got there, he turned back. And I think in here, Ehud, maybe, maybe right here, got just a holy, righteous anger. He sees this idolatry taking place. I've been to, I've been to Bangkok and, uh, a couple times, and the most eye-opening thing about that trip that I know our team's probably seen play out is you'll go to these temples and they're literally wooden statues and these people are coming and bowing to it. There's something in us that, you know, I told at the time when I went, David McCammon was the campus pastor, it makes me angry. It makes me angry. It makes you want to kick over the idols and, and stand the people up and say, don't you know? Don't you know that you're slapping God in the face? But what happens here is, I think Ehud play, he walks into that kind of situation and he is filled with rage. And so I, I want to step aside. I want to ask two things that I think we find in this passage. Two things I think we, we learn and we need to be uh, reminded of is I think in our lives there needs to be places where we build memorials. Where we see God's hand on our life. He's done something just amazing. We've seen him move. Travis asked at the beginning, how many of you have seen God fight a, a battle for you today or this week? Do we ever erect memorials when we see that? When, we, when God has sustained us, when he's done something great? Now, one of the things that I look at as memorial, I have a picture of, of my daughter where uh, I have a Bible open when she was born. We, we laid her on Psalm 139, and, and you know, it's, you're fearfully wonderful made. Uh, and we got a picture of her there. And I look at that, and I'm like, God, you are so good to me when I'm not to you. That you, through, when medically things shouldn't have worked out the way they do, and God, you powerfully did a work 
Thank you. And I look at that, it reminds me. The same way those 12 the stones, there would have been 12 stones stacked up as this memorial that these people would have looked to. And when they wanted to, in the cultural current that was going on that day, when they wanted to go bow down for these other idols because they felt like God was not answering, God was not listening, God was not providing. Remember, God is oppressing them now through a king for 18 years. When they would have looked at that and said, God, I want to turn back to you. I want to fight for you. Listen, we don't do that enough. But there are moments in our lives when there's real temptation, where there's real trials. And when we look back on the memorials, those things are set up so that we would remember God's faithfulness. And we would run back to him. Do you set up memorials in your life? The second thing I want to, I want to say about this right here is that, that we need to begin kicking down some idols in our lives. Many times where there were once memorials, there are now, there are now idols. Where there was once commitment, there is now just complacency. Where there was once just, a, just a, a love for the body and a love for being here and a love for being all in and serving him and pouring yourself out in worship, you now feel apathetic because of whatever you've been dealt. Begin kicking down those idols of apathy. Begin kicking down those idols of doubt. Begin kicking down those, uh, those idols of, of what, whatever it is for you, Right? complacency because of whatever you've been dealt. And like Ehud, let's get angry about the things that God's angry about. Let's get passionate about the things that God's passionate about. And I think right here when he gets to Gilgal and he sees these idols, he, he turns back and he's, he says, boys, y'all go ahead. I'm going to carry this tribute back. I've got a message for the king. And look what he says. He says, and he, pre- he presented the tribute to the king of Eglon at Moab. And when he goes to him, he says, I have a message for you, O king. And the king, naturally, who doesn't want to hear a message, says, silence, everybody out. I use this all the time now on on my daughter, right? Everybody loves to hear a a message, right, a secret. Uh, My daughter will go and grab a cup off the the table if it's in reach. And if it has, like, any kind of, like, water level to it, we'll, like, panic. Sometimes I'll jump and she'll just throw it or whatever, and I have to go clean it all up. But a lot of times, like, she'll, she'll hold it and just look at us. And we're like, nobody move, right? <laughs> like, let's steady her. Tiffany, flank her and grab the cup. Uh, but, you know, she'll, I'll say, Lottie, give me the cup. Give me the cup. And she'll say, no. That's her thing. Everything's no, no. I'm like, this is proven fact that we have inherited sin. I never taught you that. Uh, and so she'll be like, no. And so then I've, become, I've gotten a little bit smarter. I'll say, hey, Lottie, I got to tell you a secret. And she'll forget all about her rebellion. In that moment, she'll come to me. I'll snatch the cup, tell her I'm smarter than her, and send her to bed. Right? And so this is what happens. This king is, he can't resist. His curiosity gets the best of him. He says, yes, everybody leave. Come into my inner chamber. Now, this is in Jericho. Super hot. Right? So the coolest place would be on the roof. There would be uh, the cool roof chamber, it says, where there would be these lattice windows and the breeze would come through. Uh, and, and so this is what's happening. He, he, he allows Ehud to come in. Now, why would Ehud have had access to the king? He was not viewed as a threat. He was a cripple, a left-handed man. And God's now going to use his weakness as his greatest strength. He comes into this place, and it says in this text, he reached with his left hand to his right thigh. He got the sword. He thrust it into his belly. And it said, And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Now, of course, the student pastor has to get the, the text about poop. Okay? Uh, 
Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. It's the moment of truth. Here's Ehud, crippled man. He's got, he's got a commitment for the Lord. He's got a holy anger. And in this moment, he plunges the dagger into the gut of, a, of Eglon. The dung came out, and he tells the king to keep the sword. Now, I imagine I don't have to elaborate too much on this text, right? We both have to eat after, after uh, this service, so we're going to move on. He sees the opportunity. He, can, he kills the king. He can leave the king. He can lock the door and dip out. And when his servants come, uh, they'll think he's sitting on the throne, okay? Uh, and it says this. It says, and they waited till they were embarrassed when the servants came. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded uh, the trumpet in the hill country, and, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your, your enemies, and, uh, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And it says, and they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest under his reign, under Ehud's leadership, for 80 years. A crippled man, incredible underdog story, now leading God's people through 80 years of rest. He says he escaped the palace, and he went down to this uh, hill country, Ephraim, and says he blew the horn now, this horn would have been, the, it's called a shofar. And, and back in Genesis if, you, Genesis, if you remember, Abraham was commanded by the Lord to go and sacrifice his son. And when he takes Isaac up on the mountain, Isaac says, well, where's the sacrifice? And, and what did Abraham tell him? He says, the Lord will provide. He ties him to the altar that he had fashioned, and he goes to kill Isaac. And in that moment, God said, stop. Do not touch the boy. And it says, in that moment, God provided a ram whose horns were tied up in the thicket. He was caught up in the thicket. And so from that point on, and all of those in the, the, the hill country listening that day, those Israelites living in that oppression who had no idea what had just happened on that rooftop in Moab would have heard this horn being ringing out. And, and that horn for Israelites was this reminder for, from for all, from, from Genesis all the way through was this reminder. Anytime you saw a, the, the ram's horn, it was a reminder of God's power, God's faithfulness, God's provision. And so they would have heard this horn ring out. And it says, uh, Ehud said, the Lord has given the land into your hand. And so they went and they captured uh, back the city. And, uh, and the story goes that Ehud leads the people. And so it's just this beautiful, incredible underdog story taking place. Incredible story. This is all the judges are, just awesome stories, right? But good stories are just that unless there's application. And this text is not just a good story. To be, I love good stories, right? I'm a, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, Narnia, all that, right? I can just go and pack a, pack a bag and go and live in Barnes & Noble. But, but this text is real. This was a true story that God has given us so that we can learn something to apply to our lives so that we can become more like Christ. So what are the things? There's at least three I want to talk about. The first one, the first point of application is that Ehud challenges us to check our relationship with sin. You see, 
He was passionate about the things that God was passionate about, and he hated those things that God hated. Ehud saw the evil of the king, the sin of idolatry of the people as they made tribute to their gods. And back in the, in the beginning of, of chapter 3, it said that the Baals and the Asheroth, these pagan gods, and he was passionate about God's glory and his people's freedom, their liberation. So when we think about Ehud, one of the things I think that we need, to, we need to understand, and I hope that you take away with you, is not only that you get passionate about staying against the sin of the world, but that we go to great lengths uh, to, to purge the idols of sin in our lives. Right? That we would look out at our, at our families and we would say, I know that there's sin. I know that there's, uh, that there's propensity to sin. I know that there is this great, uh, great enemy that is working mightily to, against us. And that you would go at great lengths to pray over your family, to keep yourself from sin for the sake of your God and your church and your family. You see, most Christians complain about the evil in the world, but they're not willing to do the hard things to, to do anything about it. You see, you want the culture, the current of this culture to change? It starts with you. It starts with me. Will we be like Ehud? Ehud didn't have a plan of escape. He hadn't thought that far. He saw the idols. He was angry about it. He fashioned a sword. He went and stuck the king in the gut. And then the Lord worked out the details. See, our lives ought to be lives bent, poured out for God's obedience. Let him work out the details, no matter how hard it is. He calls you overseas. Don't worry about how the money's going to come. Put your stake in the ground. Say, I'm going to follow the Lord. He calls you to leave a job, to go take something else because you, he's clearly revealed that to you. Don't worry about the details. Worry about faithfulness. Worry about obedience to the Lord. The second thing I want to show you is this. Ehud reminds us, and, this, and the second and third points are really interrelated. Ehud reminds us that God is far less concerned with your ability than your availability. He is, he is concerned with our availability, not your skill set. Look, we see this man who would have been just trash to the culture. Yet because he was willing to love the Lord more than his sin, he was willing to love the Lord more than the, than the idols that were fashioned in this kingdom, he was willing to pour his life out if necessary so that God would be magnified in Moab. He had one arm he had one dagger, he had one moment, and he gave it to God. Listen, what, what has God given you that you've been looking at as, again, a weakness, that if you would give it to God, he would do something crazy with it? Listen, you think, man, I've, spiritually, I've got one arm. I don't know a lot. I've only been walking with the Lord for a moment. If anybody would just get a glimpse into my past, they would discount me altogether. What if you gave that to God? Was there a, is there a kid's small group in Soul Station that the kids in there would be impacted by your love for Jesus, even if it's simple? Is there a student in student ministry that you could begin discipling? Not because you know a lot. I'm going to tell you something. Students don't care what you know. They care if you're real, if you love Jesus. If I've learned anything in almost 10 years of student ministry, that's it. If you love Jesus and you love kids, they'll follow you. 
okay? What, what is it that you have that you've been looking at as discounted, as disabled, that if you, if you would give it to God, he would wreck your mind what you would do with it? Listen, and the final thing I want to show you in this text is that Ehud gives us a shadow of Christ, and it's in related to his lack of ability. You see, Ehud was never given for us to look at and see this perfect image of Jesus. In fact, the way that Samuel writes this, this, this book of Judges so beautifully is that he is giving us a flashing neon sign in the testimony of Ehud to get your eyes off of Ehud and on to Jesus. This, this man is, is imperfect, he's disabled, he, has, he doesn't have all the skills, he's weak, but the great news about Ehud and about us is that we are really a room full of Ehuds, and God does not need us to get a strong right arm because throughout the scripture, he is the strength of our right hand. Right in Genesis 35, when uh, when who was it? Uh, Rachel was was giving birth to uh, her, her son. She said, "I will name him Binyane, which means son of my sorrow." Jacob said, "No, no, no. His name will be Benjamin, which means God's right hand or God's strength." Throughout the Scripture, God's right hand is strength and provision, and power. Isaiah 62, God swears by his right hand. In Exodus 15, God destroys his enemies by his right hand. In Psalm 16, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And where does Jesus sit today? At the right hand of the Father in strength and power and might. Listen, church, he doesn't want us to get our right hand strong. He says, if you will be weak, I am your strength. If you will be weak, I am your provision. If you will be weak and get low and humble yourself before me, where you lack, I more than, I more than feel. Where you are, are weak, I have more than enough strength. He doesn't want a, a able people. Throughout the scripture, God crushes able people. God uses weak people. Will you be weak before him? Will you be weak before him and use Whatever God's given you, give what you got to God and see what he does with it. Listen, we're going to move into a time of, of response here and time of, of worship. And one of the ways that we're going to respond today is uh, through communion. You know, throughout the, throughout the Bible uh, and throughout the story of Judges, when people forget God, they turn to false gods. Right? When people forget their God, they turn and find themselves in just disastrous, sinful situations. And what we see today in this passage is that Ehud reminds his people as he blows that horn, the might and the strength of their God. One of the ways that we do that today as a church is through communion. You remember when Christ instituted the, the elements, he, he told them that do this as often as you what? You remember me. So the, the ushers are going to come forward, and we're going to pass out these communion elements. And here in a moment, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to lead through this communion time together. But let this be a time for you where you remember the Lord, where you remember his faithfulness, you remember uh, how, how he's blessed your family, how he's, he's, uh, he's blessed you personally. Maybe he's given you what you would think is a, is a weakness, but he's given you just a beautiful testimony that if you would give it to God, Listen, there is somebody that would be powerfully shaken by it. Let's remember the Lord in this time. And, and you respond in a moment uh, as, we, as we continue to worship. You respond to the Lord, how he leads. But give what you got to God.